Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Pogson and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 9, we conclude our trilogy of analysis with part 3 of Star Wars A New Hope, celebrating 40 years of Star Wars this year in 2017, and uh, we've really enjoyed serving it up to you for parts 1 and 2, and certainly looking forward to concluding our analysis in part 3 with a look at maybe some of the lesser known themes and certainly a lot of the uh, cues that we, we haven't looked at in full in parts one and two, a lot of the battle music and um, even some other little surprises, which I think should be fun. And of course, joining me on this final leg of our journey is composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor and second clarinet of the Moss Isley Cantina Band. It's Nicholas Buck. How are you doing, Nick? Oh, what a what a uh, honour to be bestowed upon me. Thank you very much, Andrew. <laughs> when do you think you might uh, uh, you know, audition for that first chair? Well, I think I've got to sell the moisture farm first because that's really – I just don't have enough time to practice. Um, and they always play out of tune, those, those bands there. So I've got, to, I've got to work on my upper lip. <laughs> and, of course, the third member of our trio is a writer, critic, university lecturer, and he has a beard. I've seen him wear a hoodie. It's Ben Dan Goldie. I've tried, I tried, Dan. Yeah, it's Dan yeah, Goldie. Yeah. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing very well. In this final episode, I'm looking forward to uh, staying, uh, well, stay on target, you know, staying on target and really completing our mission here. Mm. Man, I adore the fact that I'm always very keen to hear what your your little quote is, actually with both of you guys. Um, so, that's my favorite part of the episode done now. So, I can yeah, just sit good, back. Great. I can sit back. Yeah. Done, done. Absolutely. Your introductions are the favorite part of that episode too. <laughs> mm. So, that's a love fest here. And of course, if at home, if you're enjoying Art of the Score, which hopefully you are, we're really uh, pleased that you've joined us for part three of this journey through here. I hope you're getting as much out of it as I'm getting out of it. It's one of my, you know, sort of most favorite scores. It's what got me into soundtracks, what got me into orchestras. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping you're, you're enjoying it. And if you are, press subscribe, write and leave us a comment on, leave us a rating on iTunes and tell your friends. Now, maybe you've got a colleague, you know, friend at work who, who's really into Star Wars, but maybe doesn't know about um, Art of the Score, or maybe doesn't know about music, you know. Tell them to, to check us out. We'd really appreciate it. But, guys, I think we're, we should just get straight into it for, for part three. And, Dan, where are we going to move to? What's, what where do we open up the episode with? Well, I think we're going to open this episode in the June seas of Tatooine. My uh, favourite place. Exactly, yes. It's a holiday. <laughs> Look, it's, it's certainly warm. Yes. You do get some sand, though, as Anakin tells us, it does get everywhere. Yeah, no, that's uh, a problem. But anyway, uh, we are going to start with some, uh, you'd have to call it minor music for this film, but some really interesting and quite unique music for Star Wars, uh, the, the series in general. Uh, I think it's, it's the music for the Jawas. It's a, a theme in many respects, but a, a fascinating and different piece for the film. Houdini! Thank you. 
really interesting writing, isn't it? Yeah. It sounds like nothing else in, in Star Wars. Mm. I mean, but at the same time, sort of, now that it's, we're so used to it, it, it feels very Star Wars in that otherworldly totally. kind yeah. of nature. Yeah. I mean, probably the only piece of music I was thinking that's somewhat similar is maybe the Ewoks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and look, for also uh, diminutive creatures sure. or characters, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, shall we yeah. say. Strange and, aliens, um, yeah. yeah, very kind of bouncy woodwinds. Mm. Know, the Ewok has a that's a bit more kind of bubbly and feisty and positive. Yeah. Mm. This one isn't really, it's not menacing or sinister, mm. but it's not sort of, it's sort of cute but odd. Yeah. You know, it's not really major or minor. Mm. It's just, it's almost kind of music that kind of is in its own little bucket. Mm. And I think, you know, harmonically and rhythmically, it's really odd because um, if we just listen to the opening kind of bit there, it's hard to know actually where the downbeat is. Mm. Do you, what do you guys think? Because I, I know what's in the One, score. But two, three, four. Do you think the lower note is the downbeat or is it upper notes? When the, I the tap downbeat. along, I tap along on the chords. Not the bass. So, I would count the chords as beat one and three. Okay. Well, you are correct then. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's okay. like one, two, three, one, four. One, two, two yep. three, four. Yep. So, all the bass notes are off-beats. On, on, off beats, yeah. Mm. And it's really unusual. So, that kind of nature of it is a bit kind of un, mm. unsettling and off kilter and it's it's in some ways it's sort of got this really it reminds me a bit of sort of that hi-ho yeah. hi-ho I it's was off thinking, to work yeah. we go but mm. in a completely removed mm. you know and, and yeah. retransplanted way um, mm. whether that's just we associate the little guys but you know there's lots of them they're kind of up to stuff they're often marching in little formations yeah well I think this cue on the original vinyl release is called the little people it's called the little people mm. yeah mm. Um, so yeah, that, that that's really interesting. Mm. And there's a couple of uh, you know orchestration techniques yeah. being used in this one, where uh, we we've touched on this before, but it's a classic, and that's the the use of the pizzicato in the mm. strings, and uh, pizzicato being a technique where instead of using the bow over the strings, you use your fingers to pluck them, and that's where you get that little plucky. You know, backing to the um, uh, the melody. Yep. The melody is played on what? Melody starts on a choranglet. Yeah, is choranglet? Okay. Yeah. I, w- I wondered whether it was a really high bassoon or it's choranglet. Uh, I think but a really high bassoon picks it up late in yep. that section. And then even play. later, John Williams actually puts it on a really high tuba, which I'd love to find because mm. it really in the score it's actually got marked eight ve if possible, and eight <laughs> ve means basically uh, when we write. Uh, a line of music it's sort of sh- is short for octave, which means play it up the octave. So if I write it here and I write 8 VE, you'd actually try to play it. And the tuba we know is like a low bomb bomb in instrument. Mm. And it is so high that it's like totally strained, but the guy nails it. Um, let me just see if I can find this bit. That's the tuba there. Yeah, then we get these muted trumpets, which sort of feel a bit sinister, but kind of playful. Mm. There's a playful darkness there as well. Yeah. But that that tuba, I mean, he's really, I mean, he's up to 
up to you know B flats above middle C. That's that's getting you know high for French horns almost. Yeah. And it sounds strange. I mean, it sounds like it's a a, a horn, horn or something. <laughs> a horn made out of you know like a a shell mm. or a you know something it's the found. Conch. Yeah, the conch. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The, yeah. the whole thing, the the effect of all, all of it put together, it's sort of carnivalesque, I suppose, in a way. It's that yeah. that sort of you know sideshow attraction, sort of yep. <laughs> you know um, a, a squeeze box in a way. Yep. Yeah, and I guess because every other melody that we've heard presented has pretty much been on more you know inverted commas traditional instruments. You know, mm. uh, trumpets, uh, the French horn. You know, uh, some woodwind solos like you know uh, oboe and flute. The Coronglee is relatively, it's a slightly more exotic. You know, mm. even the bassoon to take a melody is slightly more exotic. Mm. You know, when I try and think of the last 30, 40 years of film music, mm. you know, think of a main melody that's been on bassoon. It's, it's really hard to. I mean, the Born Identity is the only modern thing I can think of that mm. really yep. used bassoon. Mm. Um, and to then have the tuba so high really is showing the intrinsic sort of orchestrational you know sophistication mm. of Williams and there's a little slides in it too like he's going yeah, wow yeah little grace wow. notes yeah yeah mm. and of course you know the only other time we really kind of feature the tuba in the Star Wars universe is of course for Jabba, Jabba the, the Hutt, Hutt yeah who got his own little tuba motif which oh, makes well, there's, sense there's Look uh, at him. <laughs> there, there's some tuba for the walkers on Hoth as well Ooh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but right. similarly connoting size yeah so yeah, yeah. Connoting, I like that connoting size and yeah. ploddingness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Whereas here, it's 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 something a bit more unusual. Mm. So yeah, that's that's a really interesting bit of music for for the Jawas, mm. uh, which which I like. I like that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It sort of also shows off the the orchestration. That I mean, we haven't really spoken about. Uh, in detail um, throughout the previous two episodes is that one of the things I think that makes this score great is the varied and very unusual and very classical, I think, um, use of the orchestra where you have, you know, muted brass, as we just heard, or corps anglais or, you know, uh, you know, sort of the double reed instruments being featured much more. And yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's, it was unusual then. It was unusual after Star Wars. It's unusual today. And it's one of the things that gives the score its very particular flavor. Yep. And of course, that brings us up to the other, um, would you call them the natives? Mm. I guess we don't know who actually is native on the Tatooine, but... Talking about the sand people. The sand people, mm. yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, well, it is interesting because, I mean, I, I've said a few times that mm. Star Wars has kind of got this relationship to the Western. I think it's kind of implied that the sand people play this sort of marauding native the savages. Figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, would be... Um, Why aren't the Jawas also natives in this? Well, I... I They're I not think, presented as natives. Yeah. They're scavengers, I suppose. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. Um, but certainly the, the Sam people, I think, fit into that trope of the Western uh, very clearly, which would not have been okay in the 1970s to portray Native Americans like that, uh, as it definitely wouldn't be today. So I guess if you substitute them for a kind of alien creature. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. No one cares. Mm. They're aggressive like the Jawas aren't. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And then the Ewoks are somewhere in between. Sure. <laughs> yeah. They can defend themselves at least. Yeah. Well, let's hear it. The theme for the Sand people. Listen to yeah. that. Very interesting. I mean, I, instantly off the bat, you can hear 
you know, unusual percussion. Well, not unusual, but but certainly exotic in this in this respect. Mm. Um, you know, things like tom toms, bongos, collegno techniques. That kind of almost slapping, snapping. Mm. Dun, dun. Yeah, can you explain what that what that sort of string technique is? Yeah, so collegno is basically where you hit the string with the wood of the bow instead of the hair. And often it's done in a sort of, rather than turning the bow 180 degrees, you'll turn it 90. So you're kind of getting a bit of the hair and a bit of the bow. And, and that, that kind of flexibility allows mm. you to tailor how much wood, how much hair and how much of the note you get. And you get a real sort of slapping sound. Yes, and it's in a sort of percussive mm. and yeah, not much note. And he's certainly using it there with some low piano, you know, some muted brass again mm. in, in the high horns. And there. actually, Nick, because it's such a unique, um, you actually don't hear that that string technique awfully, you know, often. Um, can you just cue up that little bit again, and and so that now that people know what they're listening to, they can they can just listen out for those slapping strings yeah. uh, that all sort of been done in unison with with the hard part of the bow. Yeah, there it is in the background yeah. there. Yeah, it's really cool. I like that one. I like. I that. mean, look, you'd hear lots in sort of horror films and mm. as a sort of just orchestral effect, mm. um, you know, mixed with, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I could kind of sing this cue uh, yeah, yeah, um, in, a yeah. non- in a non-melodic way. If I'd known that, we wouldn't have bothered putting all of these uh, cues together. Nick. Yeah. We'd just set you off every oh, time. We will, we'll, we'll do the Pitch Perfect acapella episode <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'll yeah. sing the whole thing. <laughs> but look, yeah, something again that doesn't really appear much throughout the cue, uh, sorry, the, throughout the film, just in this really isolated sand people bit. Hmm. Well, it, I mean, you know, the, the use of percussion, I mean, I, I've read several interviews with or- orchestras that have worked with Williams uh, and, you know, often the percussionists say that they get really excited when they do a Williams score because they know that he writes really fantastic percussive work. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, his father, I think, was a timpanist. Uh, Is his brother a timpanist as well? Uh, yeah, perhaps, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty mm. sure, yeah, there's a few family relations in there. I mean, mm. his son his son isn't a timpanist. His son is, a, 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 do you know who his son is? Uh, yeah, he plays in some band. Which yeah, is what stuff, band? Um, I've forgotten. He's the current lead singer of Toto. Ah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Toto, wow. <laughs> he's, not, he's not the singer in uh, Africa. Uh, he came in a few years after that, but mm. yeah. There we go. Anyway. Sorry, there's a little distraction. But mm. yeah, I mean, the, the, the use of percussion. Yeah, that's the way. <laughs> and look, I mean, to- Toto, I, I was searching for a long time, hoping that there'd be this link. Toto wrote the score for June. Yeah. Which is a great score. With William Sonny at the helm then? No, it was just before he joined. Otherwise, anyway. Look, the percussion throughout this film is really interesting as well. Later when we get to the Death Star, we've got some really excellent use of uh, timpani too. Yeah. And then timpani is really used to sort of drive... You know, it's in the same way, I guess, with the good guys or in some of our episodes, it's been the bad guys as well. But the the snare drum being used to mm. drive the military forward. But with this film, they actually really use timpani to sort of drive mm. everything forward. Yeah. Mm. And often and even has little slow dum, dum, boom, kind of mm. sneaking around. I think, you know, when Ben's trying to try to... Is that the cue where he's sort of trying to work out how to shut down the tractor beam hold thing? Mm. And yeah, that has some really kind of sparse percussion and piano mm. and, and some little timpani bits. There's even sections where they, they roll and they do a glissando on the timpani. So as, as the timpanist is either playing or doing a roll, he'll actually push or pull the pedal up and it goes... Uh, yeah, mm. that's right. Uh, which is a really interesting technique as well. Yeah, and that, that stretches the strings. Uh, sorry, the string, the... Um, uh, skin. The skin. Sorry, mm. wrong word. Uh, the skin. So 
as the the skin stretches, it it gets higher in in pitch and uh, back down again. So um, people don't realise that that timpanis can do glisses like a um, or slurring or sliding between notes like like trombonists can, but they totally can. It's really cool. And also, you know, a lot of the scenes on the Death Star where they're sort of sneaking around, we also get you know that, that use of the timpani and other other interesting percussion. Um, so let's let's have a listen to some of that kind of music. Of course, um, people who've listened to part two will know that totally leads into the Imperial March Dan, that you yeah, totally yes. agreed with me on that oh, one. Oh, sure, yeah. That's the, that the first great. hidden appearance That of was it. great. Yeah, you mean yeah. the major third descending interval? Yeah, yeah. No, that, that Imperial March. Because when we left when we left the uh, the studio here after the recording, you know, we, we said, oh, how great was that, that you got that right? That was a great moment in my yeah, life, Dan. That, Thank that you. definitely happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. I, I love the, the timpani in that one. It's sort of really great. But when I hear all of this sort of, you know, scattered percussion and, and especially back to those sand crawler moments, I can't help but think about another score by the great Jerry Goldsmith, having only just received his star on the... Really? Um, yeah. Gosh. It was oh, announced like remarkable. last year, but he got it, actually unveiled it just the other day. Yeah. yeah on it was the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Exactly. Mm. Which, God, that took a long time. Well overdue. Anyway, it's Jerry Goldsmith's score to the original Planet of the Apes. The, the entire score actually is filled with all sorts of really interesting percussion and, um, and so on. But this particular cue is called The Hunt, and we pick it up sort of partway through and gives a nice example of that sort of really crazy percussion that, that we heard earlier on with the sand people. Isn't it a weird, like I, I hear the sand people and all I can think of is Planet of the Apes, but then when you play it, like actually, no, these are sort of really mm. different, mm. but there must be something about the, the vibe and the, you know, the orchestration and the, just the intent of that sort of scattered percussion that mm. sort of invokes that memory. Yeah, it, it's the fact that they don't really have an easily discernible rhythmic pulse. Yeah. Mm. They seem quite wild and, and, and unabashed. Yeah, wild is a good term, I think. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I suppose as well, I mean, Planet of the Apes was incredibly groundbreaking as a score incorporating, you know, a lot of modernist techniques of the time that were really sort of cutting edge. And for that reason, I mean, it's a phenomenally difficult score to, to pick apart. I'm sure it'd be a good candidate for future episodes, but it's very difficult to sort of understand exactly what's going on there for all of these reasons. So if you're keen to hear us talk about Planet of the Apes. If enough people write in, we yeah. might give it a shot. Yeah. But I, I'm the same, Dan. I It's sort of amazing, but I'm scared of it. Yeah. No, me too. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. 
Well, anyway, if you want to hear it, write in, write into um, on Twitter, Art of the Score, or um, Instagram, and um, yeah, we'll we'll see what we can do. So I suppose that leads us to one of the other major things that we really have to talk about is that the influences that are at work in this score. Is this I the think. elephant in the room? This is, is, is the this the Jawa in the room? Oh no, no, well, the Jabba yeah. in the room. No, I don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah. uh, no, there, there would be banthers. I think that's oh, the, the big elephant-like creature. It's yeah, the banther no, in the that's room. Right. The banther in the room. No, you're right. We absolutely have to talk about it because mm. I think for one reason, you know, people talk about how influential Star Wars is, but the fact is that it itself was highly influenced mm. by things that came before it. And maybe this is just the passing of the baton. But I know personally, when when some of the references we're about to look at were sort of pointed out to me not that long ago, some of them I was like, ah. Oh, Wow, that's mm. that, yeah. I can see where where he really got the influence from, mm. for, for that from. And you know, part of me thinks, oh, should I should I feel bad? Should I <laughs> think, oh, Williams is a dud. He's a he's a he's a phony, or is he still a genius? And I think he still is a genius. You know, Stravinsky always said that great. What's what's the what's the quote? Great artists. Uh, good artists borrow great artists deals mm. <laughs> something like that mm. yeah certainly and as I said before the whole film visually is made up of references to other films in fact the entire final dogfight in order to prepare the special effects sequences and describe to the newly formed ILM uh, what he wanted he they taped you know back when tapes were very early they taped dogfight films from and broadcast TV and cut, cut them and in. cut them together. <laughs> yeah, it, and that's you know the very early previews and to said, people. Can, can like you guys Spielberg. recreate yeah. this, but in space? <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and you can go through, especially with the Dambusters uh, and Six Three Three Squadron, and see shot for shot in some of those final sequences. And as I said, there's a shot for shot reference of the Searchers. Uh, the Hidden Fortress has a very similar storyline to the film. You know, there are all these elements that come together in Star Wars, just as with the music. And you know, well. At Actually, the strangest element is uh, the the final in the throne room, uh, the the visual uh, makeup of that final shot, you know, where there's the huge crowd on either side and we see our heroes up receiving their medals on the podium. Mm. Uh, do either of you know what I'm about to say? That this is No. A, this is... Get ready. <laughs> okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. This is a direct visual link to Triumph of the Will, the Nazi propaganda film. Ooh. Wow. Wow. Why? So, yeah. Why? <laughs> on purpose? Uh, well, Lucas denies that it was on purpose, but it's from some concept art from Ralph McQuarrie, who um, I think was taking it. Lenny Riefenstahl, it's, it, I mean, it's a, be- it's a beautifully shot film, obviously. What so, it's what's supporting. the film called? It's called Triumph of the Will. Triumph it's, of the Will. Yeah, it's about the- What year are we talking like 1935, I think, perhaps. Okay. It's, uh, this, so, this is, um, it's about the Nuremberg rallies that were going on, and it's- Incredibly influential because the aesthetics are incredible. Like the fascists were very good at using media. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, incredibly groundbreaking in its depictions, but obviously it's supporting something that's horrifying. Anyway, Lucas is kind of, I mean, I don't think he's suggesting that the Rebel Alliance is like the Nazis. No, I don't. I think that's a bit yeah. far. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I don't think he's making any conscious intellectual link. Mm. But he's Unless, unless he's, um, maybe he'd just been writing 
Raiders of the Lost Ark in his bedroom, yeah. you know, during <laughs> maybe. that period, thinking about his next film project. <laughs> yeah. And somehow the two images got, <laughs> maybe, maybe, got mixed up. Maybe. But well, I mean, yeah, like it's a very clear, uh, you can't deny, I don't think that there's a clear link between those two I- images and that's much worse than anything we're talking about with the music. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, before we really sort of delve into this is that, uh, you know, we touched on it, I think back in part one, actually, mm. where we spoke about the fact that this uh, movie had all of these temp scores, these pieces of classical music. Music, film music, all sorts of different music that had been put in there. Now, there's a very specific reason why that happened in the case of Star Wars, and that's because this film was an utter mess. Before <laughs> it got to the editing room, mm-hmm. or even during the editing, the special effects were really far behind, um, because like you said, yeah, yep. non-existent. Mm. ILM were brand new, they didn't know what they were doing. All of these techniques they were inventing on the fly. Mm-hmm. And so, there were half-done shots, there were shots that didn't look very good, mm-hmm. um, there were shots that didn't exist. And so, the studio execs at the time were getting super nervous. And they were freaking out that this was, you know, they'd spent a fair bit of money on it at mm. this point. You know, screenings that were happening internally where they were checking on Lucas's progress, it looked like a disaster zone. Mm. And so, this film was really saved in the editing suite. And the first step of doing that was putting on these temp scores mm. to just try and add some kind of uh, life yeah, life mm. and normalcy to mm. this movie to sort of just try and say, look, we get it. We get it looks like a mess on screen. We get that there's all this noise on screen because, mm. you know, they're, they're, they're filming or recording on really noisy sound stages that are later going to get deleted out. But let's put over some, some classical music. And so, of course, in comes John Williams and he's asked – you know, studio execs are starting to love what they're seeing on the on the screens. Um, so, they're going, okay, well, I'm feeling a bit more confident. And, you know, uh, John Williams is told, we really need it to feel like this. Mm. And in some specific instances, he just says, well, okay. <laughs> you want it to feel like that? Then we're going to have it feel like that. And I think probably one of the most overt um, examples of this is uh, with the June Sea of Tatooine and um, Nick has uh, something queued up here. Nick, what, do you want to sort of introduce what, what we're about yeah, to hear? Yeah, so here? this is um, the the time where we first see Tatooine and the droids are sort of just wandering lost aimlessly. But I'm going to play a bit of William's score and a bit of Stravinsky's music for uh, The Rite of Spring, that very controversial ballet he wrote in the early 1900s. And I'm not going to tell you which one is first or which one is second. I'm just going to play them back to back and they're going to blend into each other. And the similarities are uncanny. So, I That's mean, just all Star Wars, isn't it, Nick? So, what do we actually the, hear there? The first mm. little bit was from Star Wars, mm. uh, the cue entitled The Dune Sea of Tatooine, and the second one was uh, an excerpt from Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Mm. Um, and that's sort of those meandering sort of 
quite terse, intense woodwind chords. Do, 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 do. Yeah, they're really same key. really close. Same key, mm. same everything. Like almost, mm. yeah, pretty much. Yeah, um, slightly different voicings. And, mm. and, but yeah. yeah, it's... But look, you know, with not, with not much else going on apart from a bit of sort of high... You know, high string tension on top. Yeah, it's very exposed for what the original was, which is mm. um, there's nowhere sort of for Williams to hide. Mm. You know, it doesn't have like low brass chords, or something you know, disguising it. It's it's there. And look, I mean, look, it works, it works perfectly in the film. It, mm. it is very alienating and, and cold yeah. and desolate. Yeah. yeah, but my my, it's it's you know, when you say he won the best score for original composition, like you can't. Or look anyone straight in the face and say, yeah, it's for that bit because yeah. it's yeah, just yeah. not. Yeah. Um, I mean, I th- yeah, I mean, and this comes in, this particular section comes in directly from the era where Lucas thought that he might use classical music. There's a um, an interview with, I think, the music editor who actually, it's hilarious, says that uh, we're going to put in a bit of the writer spring and uh, Lucas goes, oh, yeah, put on put on the second the second side, side B, because that's the second tableau from writer of spring and it would be on most recordings the B side of the album. And he says, because nobody listens to that. <laughs> they, they always listen to the first bit with yeah. the, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the more famous uh, da 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 yeah. yeah, But look, so. I mean... You know, also with some of the other examples we're going to play, I mean, John Williams has been very mum on on all this kind of stuff. And I think, look, for any composer, it's you really have to walk that fine line between wanting to please your directors and, you know, doing what is true to your own artistic and creative vision. I mean, as long as, as far as we know, like Williams could be highly embarrassed that he was sort of had, had, had to to basically rip off Stravinsky, especially in this bit. Mm. Now, other bits, it's more influential. But here, I mean, you really can't argue that it's, it's, it's getting close to plagiarism. Mm. It, it really is. Uh, I know that sounds harsh, but you know, I'd love to hear how Williams feels on this. I, mm. I really would. Yeah, and I'm convinced. I don't even think it's really in dispute here. I don't think it was something that Williams did thinking he'd get away with it, so yeah. to speak. I think he was just quite literally, he was booked for a job. And yeah. um, and he just like, okay, fine, you win this one. And then yep. did it. Yep. And uh, But what he does sort of develop it. You know, he does put that little melody yep. over the top that's totally mm. different. Mm-hmm. And so, it's really just those opening. Dee, 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 mm. That is the same. And then he does do his own little melody yep. over there. So, mm. you know, it is it is different. But he's certainly, that's probably the most over example. It, it is, yeah. 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 I mean, there are other instances. None probably quite as overt. Although, oh, to be honest. Actually, the, this, this next one is yeah. going to be overt as well, isn't it? I promise <laughs> you it's uh, only two. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit here. Uh, this, is, this is with, well, I mean, there's two instances. I you guys look. So, you look so cautious. Yeah, like you're yeah, going to yeah. get told off by mm. by fans, <laughs> by the, the film music gods. No. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I mean, there's two instances actually, but maybe we'll concentrate on uh, the the earliest part in the film, where quite clearly the inspiration is drawn from Mars, the bringer of war, from the planet Sweet by Gustav Holst. Yes. Uh, and so at the beginning, it's it's literally for the, what we see when the the ships go overhead after the opening crawl. We hear this.
And certainly, I mean, as I said, I think all the way back in episode one, uh, George Lucas's original instructions for the opening of Star Wars was to be war drums in space, you know, yes. sort of, you know, see, see Mars, the bringer of war as, as a potential option. Um, so it's very clearly one of the, the, the more directed uh, yeah, and, and once again, it's, it is written about, the editor said at the time, that was the, that was the cue that they used, the temp music yeah. that they mm. used for that, the, the studio exec. So, and even the way those chords sort of, um, whatever mm. it is, um, you know, slowly just gets slower, dun, 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 like that whole first movement from, from the planet's Mars, it really ends like that drawing mm. out those chords over and over. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it, it harks back to that when uh, the Death Star is about to be destroyed, really building yep. up the suspense with yep. exactly the same yep. uh, technique. Yeah, and the, it's it's a technique of that you know again the pedal with the mm. you know, and in the case of Mars, it, it's just slightly different chords, but yeah, um, strong brass chords over a, over a, a sort of a constant pedal. Mm. And of course, we we explored pedals and ostinatos. Ostinatos being um, repeated rhythmic patterns. Uh, we explored those in the uh, Bernard Herman episode. Mm. So right. if you love your ostinatos <laughs> and you haven't checked out our uh, Vertigo episode, go check it out. Yeah. A bit of ostinato in there. You know, speaking of, of Vertigo, the Ooh, really yes. opening crawl. You know, kind of ends and we kind of have that little mm. float up into space. Yep, yep, yep. And we sort of end with these kind of creepy. Uh, uh, And I just hear those end bits. Yeah. Ah. It feels very vertigo, doesn't it? There's our vertigo. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Do, do we want to talk about the Herman possible little section in, well, in this d- film? Just, just before we move on, okay. I mean, the polychords that Williams is using here is something he uses throughout oh, like his film scores in general. I mean, I just conducted Harry Potter last week and it's all over that where he'll use, you know, maybe like... Uh, could be like a minor chord on, on top of a major chord or even like um, two major chords which are kind of a semitone apart to kind of spread uh, to kind of get, get this kind of sound you know I guess similar to the way Herman sometimes stacked those chords in mm. in, in, in vertigo um, you know the, the music of Camino and stuff in some mm. of the early episodes has mm. that similar kind of feel um, it's really yeah, interesting Technique, and the, I mean, we so we do get this moment. We might as well talk about it now while we're talking about the Herman links in the film, where uh, all of a sudden uh, a bit of psycho turns up. Uh, yes. Bizarrely <laughs> enough, <laughs> it's, it's only three notes. Yeah. But, um, I'll play a bit from Star Wars and then a bit from Psycho. And Psycho. And so this is this is interesting because this is something that John Williams has actually been on record multiple times vehemently denying. He said oh, that's really? just pure coincidence. But he, he was friends, and I always thought for the longest period that uh, it, it was, was like just, a little homage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like because hey, Bernie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Bernard Herman had died. Yeah, Benny had died uh, just two years previous in 1975. I don't know, maybe. But so I was doing some research for this as yet unnamed. Star Wars research project that I'm doing, mm. and I discovered something. Oh, light deep, on us. yes, deep in the making of Star Wars book, the huge, huge one officially done by Lucasfilm by a guy called R- uh, Rinsler, I think J.W. Rinsler, 
it's the huge authoritative history of Star Wars with interviews with everybody. There's this tiny little inset interview with the music editor. And he says, yeah, I temp that with Psycho. I use Psycho for the temp music in that scene. <laughs> so, Williams is Busted. either misremembering or he's... he's, he's uh, I think yeah, he'd be trying to save face, yeah. is my opinion. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so, I mean, that's... Uh, you know, I mean, uh, and like, yeah, maybe we won't talk about this now, but, you know, Bernard Herman reused those same three notes in Taxi Driver to sort of link yeah. link Psycho yep. with, uh, with Taxi Driver. But, I mean, it's... So, the context is in Star Wars when those three notes are played, it's when they've just... Uh, emerged from hiding on the Millennium Falcon after they've uh, got into the Death Star, you know, in those little boxes the, the beneath the floor and the Falcon. I mean, there's no intellectual link we can possibly draw no. between that moment and well, unless, in Psycho. Isn't that, in Psycho, isn't that the cue, the swamp? And isn't there like a dead body in the back? Those, those three so, notes are called the madhouse motif. Oh, okay. um, so, it's associated with Norman Bates's madness. Okay. So, so I, re- I reckon pro- 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 probs <laughs> not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why didn't you know that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's an interesting little thing. It's a tiny little thing. But I suppose uh, maybe the other key one is the throne room. Yes, the throne room scene, which we actually haven't even played the throne room mm. properly in this entire three-part. Well, we played a little bit of the example maybe um, mm. earlier, but we haven't done the whole thing. I thought that I would play what I, um, once again, I'm fairly confident was the temp music again for this scene. And it's from Dvorak's New World Symphony, and it's the, the Allegro movement. There's actually something that happens right at the start of this particular movement and it's potentially another little influence that John Williams may have mm. um, used in another score. Let's see if you guys can pick it up. But right. it moves from that very quickly into the throne room. And let's see if uh, you can sort of hear where that influence is coming from. So there we go. What, what what was that opening bit? Oh, that's that's Jaws. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. So it's Jaws going straight into the uh, the throw Jaws in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Jaws in Star Wars. Yep. Yep. I mean, look, Im- it's it's two notes. You yeah. know, there's going to be lots of instances of, course, of those yeah. two notes coming mm. in. So I don't know, maybe a little unfair that one. But do you guys reckon in uh, of that link between once it yeah, gets going? Yeah, well, I mean, we could hear mm. the the comparison to mm. to how that actually plays out in the throne room with that main uh, key unison brass line. I think. Mm. There. Yeah. And it's also importantly, it's the stabbing I was say, sort of yeah. strings and um, those uh, interjections yeah. in between. So it's da 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 da. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And in, the, in the throw room, they're just a bit bit kind of close closer. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And then and of course here is the actual throne room from Star Wars: A New Hope. <laughs> Thank you. 
you think this bit feels like they're at a university? Uh, yeah. Well, I was uh, going to say about this part, oh, actually. Oh, okay. Oh, I'll, I'll bring it down. Dan. Yeah, bring yeah. It down. No, so this is actually, this is what I associate with as the throne room theme. Oh, okay, yep, yep, yep. Because this melody is, I mean, it it's part of a lot of the main Star Wars suites, but it's actually only played in this scene. That da 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 da. That melody is uh, it, it, it's it's in this scene, and that to me is the throne room. And to me, right. that sounds a little bit like uh, what we get here with uh, Edward Elgar and Pomp and Circumstance. Coronation music, you know. Yeah. Um, William Walton also wrote a piece called so Crown Imperial. Crown Imperial. Crown That's Imperial. After, yes. Okay. Um, very similar to Edward Elgar's mm. um, Pomp and Circumstance. Mm. And yeah, it really has that kind of that regal knighting of the Queen, which is kind Definitely. of what they're doing in this scene. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it gets, it gets more amplified uh, towards the end. I mean, you know, well, knighting, you know, of course, Chewbacca doesn't get his medal. But anyway, <laughs> anyway. But, okay, I said it doesn't reoccur in oh. the other Star Wars films. But it does. Ooh. There is one place that it reoccurs, and I, I've resisted making comparisons with themes across Star Wars movies because if we did that, we would have, uh, I don't know, we've spent three episodes on one film, so mm. three times eight, is, <laughs> I can't even do maths. It's a lot. It's mm. too many. Mm. This is interesting because it only appears really briefly and is sort of just gestured to. So, we've all got that melody in our mind. Da, 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 Okay. In Return of the I Jedi. I do now. I yep. do now. Yeah. The Return of the Jedi. The fleet is about to enter hyperspace. And we get this. Oh, wow. <laughs> Blink and you miss it. Oh, my God. It's sort of, you know, there's a little bit more of it as it goes on in that scene, but that is the only other time. Wow. That's great. I've never noticed that. That's, yep. yeah. I love it's that. It's certainly there. Mm. <laughs> Why do you think that is? It's because the rebel fleet, the rebel fleet is assembled for the medal ceremony. Uh, I think, yeah. I mean, uh, you could take it a couple of ways. You could say that that scene is the largest gathering of rebel troops uh, in the first film, mm. and then we have all them, all of them gathered again um, in that scene in Return of the Jedi. Or you could say because it's a more of a fractured rendition of that melody. Uh, he's sort of alluding to this is the triumph melody, the medal sequence, the coronation, the awarding of the victors. And here we are. We're sort of hoping to get to that scene in this in this sequence mm-hmm. as the fleet gets ready to go and fight that final battle, battle in Return of the Jedi. Uh, but, yeah, it's a little interesting tidbit, mm-hmm. a real sort of uh, uh, perhaps a, a train spotter's moment for Star Wars scores, but I, it's one of my favorites. No, that's great. I, I, I do love the opening of the throne room with that sort of the way it, it's so simple. You know, you could have, I think it's Luke's who, who appears first 
and the chords sort of build up with a little cymbal crash every time a new kind of person appears. You know, I think it's Luke, then Han. Yeah. Is it just the two of them? And then Chewie, you know? Mm. And, and, and he adds a note. Second person. Yeah. Third person. You know, and it even has shades of the Rebel fanfare. Then, then we're off. But sort of, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's quite, I wouldn't say it's Mickey Mousing, but it's, it's very yeah. symbolic of what's happening on and screen And what do we there. think about the, I know we've spoken about it in the, a previous part, but that plane of the force theme there, it's played on such, I can only describe it as really rude trumpets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they're sort of right in the middle of their range. They're not screaming over the top. It's just like, bam, <laughs> And it's, it's yeah. I mean, I guess I, I imagine some guy in a really tight suit <laughs> standing at attention looking angry. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. yeah but it's such a rude plane of that, that Look, force thing. I, I think this Absolutely. is a fantastic time to mention the... And it's something we never have never talked about on any of these scores is both the the ensemble performing the scores mm. and the recording. When we talk about these film scores, we're always talking about the composer and their music, you know. And it's kind of like talking about the writers and their script, mm. you know. Whereas the performance is like is like the acting. Mm. Yep. And you know, Williams he chose one of the best ensembles, the London Symphony. But if I had one criticism of of the Star Wars score, is that the recording quality is. It's okay. It, it's not amazing. I mean, maybe it's what it is for the 70s. But, you know, I have re-recordings of a lot of this stuff, which is, I mean, I have re-recordings of the throne room where it doesn't sound anything as raucous as this original does. Yeah. So, Andrew, when you're talking about, you know, tight pants and stuff, yeah. I think a lot of that is also just part of the the archival kind of recording process. Well, I, I agree. 40 years ago. In, you know? in, a, in a different way, I actually think the recording sound is, is fantastic in its kind of... It, you know, for today's ears, yeah. the roughness of the recording quality makes me it places for today. It makes me place it in the same quality as an older film score, yeah. and gives it that sort of almost nostalgic sound to it. And oh, absolutely, and I actually think that's something that's missing from The Force Awakens, which I think is a great score and great yeah. notes, but it's recorded to too good a quality, and it l- loses that sort it's, of. It also wasn't a uh, first Star Wars score to not be recorded by the London Symphony. It was done yeah. with the mm-hmm. um, LA just, Phil. Well, yeah. yes, uh, session players, but a lot of them were from mm. the LA Phil in, mm. in, uh, in a different a different hall, mm. you know, in in LA. And, and here's a little bit of trivia for you. Uh, so I work for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, and one of the ex principal horns from the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra is now the principal horn for the LA Phil, and he is the solo French horn player. Every time you hear that French horn, mm-hmm. it is actually a Melbourne well, boy playing go. that theme over uh, the top in Force Awakens. Well, yeah. I just conducted an orchestra last week where the principal cello played on Star Wars. Wow. <laughs> so, how do you, there you go. Well, I, should, I, I should have asked him about this recording <laughs> sessions. Well, I, I, I... Here we go, here we go. I have no link to any of the players whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> You probably know more about the film than two of us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, speaking of the players, I've, I wanted to touch on this, um, given that you brought it up. You guys might know his name, but the lead trumpet, the principal mm. trumpet for the London Symphony Orchestra, this was literally his first gig wow. with the LSO. Young guy. He ended up being a legendary trumpeter, for, and I can't remember his name. Maybe you guys uh, can remember. but. M- Maurice Murphy or something like that. I think mm. that's it. Or Derek, right in Derek Watkins. No, De- Derek Watkins was the the famous James Bond trumpeter. Oh yeah, yeah. Right in. 
Uh, I don't have Google here, so, you know, write into us on, on Twitter if you know who it was. But anyway, it was their lead trumpet. It was his first gig, and apparently that opening title, you know, where he hits that top B flat, uh. that was his first note mm. with, the, with the LSO. <laughs> what a way to come in. And I can only uh, imagine yeah. he is also part of that ensemble that's playing all that rude trumpet. But, you know, what a way to start your career with mm. a, um, one of the most iconic opening notes in history. Yeah. Yeah, That's anyway, just a little bit of great. trivia. I, I would mm. be happy with that if I played that note and then never was recorded <laughs> ever again. That would be fine. Uh, shall we move on, guys? Yeah. Uh, Let's look at some of the, the action music mm. uh, that appears throughout all of Star Wars. There are quite a few action sequences. And, of course, for my money, there's no better scorer of action sequences than John Williams. And so I've been really looking forward to this. And mm. I think the first one we might look at is the TIE fighter attack sequence, Great. which is the, the sort of here they come sequence. And we might sort of listen to that, not in full, but we'll at least listen to a large chunk of it at the start. It's so hip. Mm. I love it. I love all of those, uh, you know, those those beats that they're emphasizing because uh, it's just in 4 isn't it it's just in 4-4 four, four. I was about to say it mm. is not in 4-4 four, four. it's oh, actually because um, each sequence is like 10, 10 beats long okay so it's actually it's 2 bars of 3-3 three, three, followed yep. by 2 bars of 2 oh sorry 2 bars of 3-4 yep or 3 yep followed by 2 bars of 2 ah wow. instead of you know one, two, three, four. Well, I can't, I can't even do it. Have it, you count. Oh, to th- I count. Yeah, I count. you can count to two three. Two lots of three and then two lots of two. Yeah, ready? Yeah. Ready? And. One, two, three. Two, two, three. One, two, two, two. One, two, three. Two, two, three. One, two, two, two. One, two, three. I can't play it very well, but you kind yeah. of get, get the idea. Yeah. So, yeah, those unusual stabs and stuff. Yeah. Totally makes it hip. Yeah, in fact, I love it. Uh, viewers can't see this. Sorry, listeners can't see this. But Andrew sort of had his eyes closed and was doing his jazz face. And yeah, sort of, <laughs> you know, like where you smelt a bad fart, but you kind of dig it. <laughs> kind, of, kind of face. And you it, know what I was imagining? I was imagining a, a jazz band, like a like a fusion band, yeah. just mm. really rocking out on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just, yeah. it's such a cool thing. And uh, but before we sort of talk about it a little bit more, I did want to um, just chuck in a little bit of a I also think of this now uh, when I see this scene and it's forever burned into my mind and um, here it is 
Here they come. <laughs> Do you know who that is? <laughs> That's the voice of um, Peter Griffin. Peter yes. Griffin Family from guy. Family Guy. Who's I, the voice guy? What's his name? Um, oh, is it Seth MacFarlane? Yeah, Seth MacFarlane. Yeah, Seth yes. yeah, anyway, I just... It was so unexpected in that moment. such a ridiculous, you know, takeoff of the film, but which they call Blue Harvest. The it's just the fact that he starts singing <laughs> from within the film. I just think that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, of all yeah. the bits to mm. sing, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that only happens once. They don't ever do it again. Yeah. It's just that one time. And he kind of has that ostinato thing in his voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I make the most ridiculous admission, please? When I saw Star Wars first as a kid, I was mostly watching Disney movies. And musicals, and so I just I just expected that movies would have a musical number. Oh, yeah. And right. so when I was watching all of the Star Wars films, I was like, "Well, okay, <laughs> when when when's the song coming in?" And finally, it got to Return of the Jedi, and Obi Wan, Ghost Obi Wan, is trying to convince Luke to you know stay and complete his training, mm. and he goes, "So the Emperor has already won." And he says it in this such melodic way <laughs> that I'm like, oh, here it comes. <laughs> Every single time now I see that scene, I'm like, oh, he, you know, the, the, like he just, he says it in that great British trained stage actor way that it's Alec true. Guinness was. It's true. That it, like he hits that dialogue with a melody. It's waiting to happen. Anyway. I so, thought you were going to start singing the Star Wars, yeah. talking about Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Saturday Night Live at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. I think it was, actually. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, back to this cue. I mean, look, what... <laughs> Man, we're going Sorry. on huge tangents, yeah, but why yeah. not? Mm. I think what makes this such a, a great piece is that the, the rhythmic interest in it is it's kind of groovy, but off kilter a little bit at the same time, which... For a battle sequence where you're never quite sure, you know, who's going to win, there's nothing overly rhythmic and regular about it, which keeps it sort of unsettled, but Mm. moving and exciting at the same time. So, it's got that going for it. And also the, you know, the stabs are really kind of funky in the brass, but also like the harmony that Williams is using is the chords are just kind of really bizarre. Mm. Uh, And it's again where he's sort of using these poly chords where the bass often, not Sometimes it does, but often doesn't have any kind of relation to what's going on in the harmony above it. You know, you'll have the kind of B flat major chords in the right hand against an E in the background and stuff. So I'll I'll play a bit of this slowly and you really get a sense of where the movement is going. It's, ooh, it's yeah. kind of, yeah, you know, wow. sort of really chunky and blocked out like that. Mm. It's, it's, it's quite unusual. And you've got uh, that bass line sort of moving up in weird yeah. jagged motion as well. Yeah. Are you going to play that just the bass note by itself? Yeah, it's yeah, all over the yeah, place. Yeah, see sort of these tritones. Mm. Yeah. Really odd. Yeah, but it's yeah. kind of kind of cool. You know, when done with a full ensemble with everyone, you know, whipping away, it's it's really mm. really a great cue. Mm. And of course, it was verbatim kind of used again in Return of the Jedi, yeah, wasn't it? That's right. When they mm. had that kind of big space battle at the end, yeah, which is a really nice a nice Star Warsy moment. Absolutely. Mm. 
And of course, we have a the second really major battle scene, the most major battle scene in mm. uh, episode four, and that is the Battle of Yavin. Mm. Do we want to check out a little bit of the beginning of uh, Battle of Yavin? Yeah, and actually, um, I'm quite interested in how this works in comparison to some other sort of dogfighting movies, um, which I'll, I'll just play uh, the Battle of Yavin first, and we'll see see how that sounds first. Yeah, so I mean, it's hectic stuff. It's doing a whole bunch of things that that's really super complex, as John Williams' music, action music, sorry, mm. always is. Yep. Um, just before we go on to discuss that cue and I guess the broader battle of Yavin, I, I guess I just I do want to compare this with um, particularly uh, a piece from the Battle of Britain, um, the the 1960s English war movie about. The, the Battle of Britain, the the, 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 the dogfights in the sky that took place in 1940. And uh, this is by William Walton. He was engaged to write the whole score and uh, most of it was disregarded in favour for another um, composer. But uh, this one cue stuck. And I think there's, there's some lineage here. Um, so here we go. This is called The Battle in the Air. Yeah, so I mean that similar sort of, you know, there's no overt, you know, melodic or anything. No, but you can but certainly hear in the freneticism mm. and yeah, especially some of those bits at the end. Mm. And I mean, I, I think I think what both pieces do is that there's no necessarily coherent idea or, or rhythm that is tying the whole thing together. It's really a bunch of different things that that are sort of coming together almost haphazardly that implies that sort of frantic yeah and scattered battle yeah. formations and whatnot totally and almost like confusion as well mm. you know you often think about 
battles in in the air. I mean, it would it would be very confusing. You mm. know, traveling at high speeds and um, where's the baddies? Where are the goodies? Where are my allies? Mm. <laughs> you know, sorry, <laughs> insert sure. excellent Ben Burt sound effects. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, Battle of Britain was one of those films that was uh, used by Lucas to to edit together yeah, what the special absolutely. effects shots should look like. But I mean, yeah. So Battle of Yavin, it's an intense intense cue. I've been, you know, referencing Rogue One a little bit with this because it being the prequel and the prequel that happened after this one. So, they've got the, you know, they know how to make it fit in. And one of the biggest and most delightful surprises of Rogue One is when the pilots from mm. this Battle of Yavin mm-hmm. turn up in Rogue One. And it is actually the actual footage of the actual pilots. Mm. And it's because they had gone into the archives and got all of the outtakes that were never used in the movie of the pilots just sitting there saying stuff in the cockpit. Is that what they did? Yeah, and then oh, they've wow. put it into, they you know, fixed everything up and, and remastered it and they've put it into Rogue One. So, that squadron turns up in the uh, battle over, what's the planet Scarif. called? Scarif. yeah. So, that's a really cool little um, little connection there and it actually gives more weight to this Battle of Yavin yeah. because these are veterans Mm. Of you know the other great battle that happened not that uh, you know that much earlier, and they're actually completing the mission that they had set out to do. So mm. all of a sudden, this scene is not just sort of these nameless pilots that we you know that are sort of cool, uh, mm. but we don't really know who they are. Uh, but now we do. We know that they were part of this you know this history, and they're all you know mm. friends going out for one last hurrah. So it actually makes this scene even better. So if you haven't mm. seen Rogue One, uh, <laughs> or maybe you, you didn't realize that, go rewatch that scene. I think one of my favourite orchestrational things that happens, just even in the clip that we heard before of the Battle of Yavin, and let me see if I can bring it up, uh, is that they, they have the muted trumpets and they start as a single note and then one comes down, comes in in a semitone lower and they hold it. You would expect maybe for them to, to, to release it so it doesn't create that dissonance, but it, it builds a cluster. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really, really good technique. It, it uses it in lots in Harry Potter as well. Right. Oh, um, he does too, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the, I can't remember the sequence, but yeah. Mm. Mm. Really, yeah, b- building suspense through just, yeah. just not doing what you'd expect. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Guys, I think there's only one part of the score, probably one of the more famous parts of the score, actually, All that right. we haven't really touched on yet. Mm-hmm. And that, of course is the cantina music. Well, exactly. So, <laughs> I almost didn't... I can't bring myself... I mean, so there's all this ridiculous Star Wars lore around this. So, we now know, of course, that this is not just the cantina band as is listed on the soundtrack. Mm. This, The name of this piece is Mad About Me. Yep. It is by Figure and Dan and the Model Nodes. <laughs> yep. And I cannot believe I'm going to say this on like I'm being recorded saying the this. internet, the 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 genre of music yep. in the Star Wars universe. Yep, this is canon. Is jizz? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's true. J i z z. I just <laughs> can I ask what? a question though? Yeah. Because this the. People might not. Well, how on earth did you pick that up? Mm. Um, it was because a book was released yeah. uh, describing all of this. Were mm. those? Is that book? Has that been canonized? Has it been recanonized, or did it go out with the uh, everything no, else? No, I, I think it exists as the Star Wars Legends, which is not canon. So I think perhaps that that I mean I don't think they're ever going to change those answers. Yeah, right. Um, but yep. uh, yeah, that they are technically. One step yeah, mm. technically may not be. 
Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, but it's I mean it's fantastic. It's yeah. a great great little piece. Let, let's have a listen to it. It's it's been a little while for me since I've heard this, so it's such a fun piece. Here it is. Uh, the Cantina Band. By this point, they're um, they're talking over the top of it, so you don't normally mm. hear this bit. So no. if you haven't heard this before, you should uh, should check it out. But yeah, there it is, the uh, the Cantina Band, and um, I had a little quote here of uh, Lucas talking to John Williams, and and he he said to John Williams when trying to describe what he wanted to hear in this scene, he said, "Imagine several creatures in a future century finding some 1930s Benny Goodman swing band music in a time capsule or under a rock someplace. You know, try and work out how they might interpret it." And uh, of course, we get this sort of slightly bizarre version of of maybe aliens who have never heard Benny Goodman, never heard jazz, and have tried to go, "Well, how do, how do you do this?" And according to uh, CBC or Radio Canada, Williams recorded the song with nine jazz musicians, including a trumpet, saxophones, clarinet. It's probably you, Nick, isn't it, on the clarinet? Mm. Ah. Um, a Fender Rhodes piano, those steel drums, those Caribbean steel drums, mm. uh, some other drums in there, um, an ARP synthesizer mm. for the bass end, um, and various other sort of little minor percussion things coming out of the synthesizers uh, as well. And boobams. Oh, boobams. Um, I have the score in front of me. We oh, there we the are. Drums and boobams. Yeah, nice. Um, and sorry, of course, sorry, what is a boob? I think it's a bit like a marimba. Oh, okay. okay. And, of course, the, the bottom end of the sound has been really minimised. So, it's, you know, got this added reverb, but they've taken all the low end out. So, it, it sounds kooky. Yeah, and apparently it was like it was EQ'd live on set sort of as they record. Or not on set, but, you know, mm. during the recording process to kind of, yeah, it just sounds a bit kind of spaced out. Absolutely. Mm. Importantly, when we're talking about the temp music before, this is actually temp music on the set um, that I'm just going to talk about now. You know, before John Williams came in and they were recording this, you know, filming, sorry, this scene, um, they needed people in the bar to be bopping along. And of course, the music wasn't written at this point. And the music they played on set was Benny Goodman and it was Sing, Sing, Sing. So I thought it might be cool just to sort of play a portion of Benny Goodman's Sing, Sing, Sing. And um, you can imagine this maybe being in that cantina scene. And certainly, uh, if you rewatch that cantina scene and you imagine this music playing in actual you know, fact to all of the actors in there, it sort of really makes it feel like a very different bar.
That's a different. That's a classier bar. Yeah, it is yeah. a classier yeah. bar. Yeah, it's <laughs> a, but I mean, it's, a, it's yeah. a super, super classic Benny Goodman track. I think actually yeah. it's based on a, a Fletcher Henderson number called Christopher Columbus. It's an extrapolation. Oh, I didn't of, know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there you go. I can, and I can tell you about. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. I mean, it, it does. I think that's the brilliant thing about that is that instead of asking Williams to imagine some completely ridiculous, absurd sci-fi music that people would dance to. You can imagine what sort of bizarre ends that would turn to. He says, actually, no, we're going to base this in what we know. We're just going to make it a little bit weird. So yep. it seems quite different. And Williams would be fine with that being, you know, an mm. ex-jazz musician. Oh, sorry, an ex. still is a jazz musician, mm. um, you know, with that training in his background. Mm. And look, you know, don't forget about the unsing, unsung hero of that scene is the the second cantina band. Oh, piece, yeah. Which everyone forgets because, yeah. you know, it's after they have their little um, mm. dust up with Han Solo and, yep. and Guido. Uh, I'll just play a bit of this because it it's not as cool mm. or got as much attitude. It's a bit kind of like, all right. Everyone back to work, just kind of, yeah, just go about drinking yourself. <laughs> Sounds like the music on like a game like The Sims where you're in that <laughs> mode where you're like choosing an outfit yeah. for your for your sim or something. You know, it's just that really kind of laid back. Uh, and it's a nice little shuffle. Uh, yeah. Or like Leisure Suit Larry or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of has, yeah. has shades of that. In a way, like, I mean, it, it makes me sort of disappointed that John Williams didn't go on to write any more of this. I mean, he d he's got Jabba's Baroque recital, I think the track is called, from Return <laughs> of the Jedi. But he had the Terrible. opportunity to do in uh, in The Force Awakens. There's the, the equivalent cantina scene and he chose not to write the music and Didn't, instead... Yeah. Lin-Manuel Lin Lin Miranda wrote something? Yeah, along with J.J. Abrams. Huh, they yeah. co-wrote, uh, I think it's called Jabba Flow. Yeah, Jabba is Flow. On the, but yeah. Is that on the soundtrack? Uh, it's uh, not on the official soundtrack, mm -hmm. but it got a subsequent release. Yeah. And that's much more of a sort of a reggae-esque... Yeah. Sort of track. Yeah. Um, and to me, it just sounds a little bit more what you'd expect than this. But I, I don't know. Maybe. I, I, th I thought it worked. I thought yeah. the version oh, worked. I'm not, the I'm not, it, it does work. You're mm. right. I just. Uh, but yeah, there is something yeah. cool about this. It feels like they're at a casino. Mm. You know, mm. sort of. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking where is the futuristic roulette? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so yeah, I love me some uh, some cantina band. Uh, there was a just a little anecdote from me. I used to play in a lot of pit bands for shows, and there was one show. I think it was cabaret actually. In the outro, we used to just break because we'd been playing the same show for weeks and months. And in the outro, while I were doing the bows and everything, we would just break into random tunes. So each people would you know different people would bring in different arrangements to just sort of break into in the middle of the bows. I used to always bring in the cantina music in in different. <laughs> arrangements and we just break into that halfway through um, and then straight back into uh, the Sondheim which is probably really bizarre um, <laughs> but anyway we, we were very bored but yeah I just I love that piece it's mm. great mm. okay guys uh, I reckon we've got time for maybe one more thing and this is sort of a really weird thing it's not actually from the from the score and when doing my research here I suddenly thought to myself well there would have been trailers for this and as is the way with current trailers, when a trailer comes out, the music is almost never written by the composer because they haven't finished the movie. The music hasn't been finished being written by that point, especially when trailers are coming out, you know, a year in advance or six months in advance. 
And that's no different for this uh, for Star Wars. And I found the original trailer, and of course, it doesn't have John Williams' music in it at all. And it has a particular piece of classical music in there, and potentially, you know, giving that sort of hint that the uh, producers or the studio at the time was very much thinking this is going to potentially be more of a classical sort of vibe. So they've put classical music into it. Let's see if you guys can actually pick what it is when when you have a listen to it. So this is going to be the full trailer. Uh, for that would have aired way before the movie came out. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. saga of rebellion and romance. It's a spectacle, light years ahead of its time. I am C-3PO, human cyborg relations, and this is my counterpart, R2-D2. Hello. It's an epic of heroes. worlds. guys think of that it sounds baroque sorry mm. baroque baroque <laughs> yeah so i thought i said baroque um it sounds like one of the vivaldi four seasons but i don't think it is mm. um, it actually is well, it is it's the uh it's winter yeah okay first mm. movement but has um, it been like pitch shifted or yeah. something no it's super slowed down Right. Um, in yeah. a major way and therefore probably with the technology of the time also pitch shifted okay. due yeah. to that. But let me just quickly play you the, the original Four Seasons Winter. You can see just how much they've slowed it down. So you see how, yeah. you know, they're going done, done, done. Why don't it slow down to that speed? I mean, it almost sounds like a bizarro world version of uh, the start of Zadok the Priest. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my opinion, it's it's completely the wrong mood for Star Wars. Oh, like, yeah. You know, it sounds, there's an air of sort of 
tragic inevitability. Yeah. It's all sort of tragic inevitability about it. Like, yeah. But don't, don't you, right. you know what I find actually fascinating about that trailer is this is the studio putting this out. This is the studio marketing team and this is the studio itself. It's not George Lucas cutting mm. this together mm. and and so on. And you can see, you can just hear, I, mean, I know you can't see the, the pictures, but you can, you can Google it online, but you can hear how they just don't know what this film is. Yeah. They've got no idea. Yeah. And and the, the sound effects that are coming out are sort of half finished. They don't sound very good. They're all over the place. Even the the scenes where they're showing, you know, the, the characters saying lines, you can hear the noise mm. in that you know on the on set there and it's all in there and it's such they're describing it in a bizarre way oh, because totally. they don't know how to how do we sell this bizarre movie you know yeah. um and they're like oh okay you get no sense you know. of the plot yeah from from, from the audio or the least. characters which is also which would be the main selling point really yeah. and mean, they finish with the explosion they finish with the death star exploding yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great <laughs> great this gave away the ending guys yeah, phenomenal great. Phenomenal. Anyway. I, it's inter- I mean, you're, you're right. They had no idea what mm. they were dealing with. Um, and actually, uh, there was a sort of guerrilla marketing team that was um, by a friend of Lucas's who he went to uni with. Called, I think his name was Charlie Lippincott. He sort of took Star Wars around to the, the Star Trek shows. Oh, um, yeah. And the, sort of the community there. And he took it. He took along a whole bunch of posters that he'd printed off and set up a table at a... Uh, a sort of event that another friend that he knew had set up um, and, you know, it was very small at that point. Any guesses as to what the event's name was? Comic-Con? It was. Ah. Yeah, it was was Comic-Con before anybody knew it as anything major and he just sat there with a bunch of posters and sort of, you know, started (laughs) to build the word through that and they were completely at odds with what the studio was doing. Amazing. I think that about wraps it up, guys. Thank you so much for getting through this this epic look at probably one of the world's most epic uh, soundtracks. And I think we, I do need to ask the question of you guys. Mm. We did sort of potentially answer it at the start of part one, but now that we've actually gone through the score and checked it out, do you think, I'm going to go around Mm. Nick first. Nick, do you think this is the greatest score of all time or do you not? Do you want the short answer or the long answer? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, it's pretty darn close, you'd have to say. I don't like ultimatums personally. You uh, have it's, to. It's, it's, just, it's, it's a black and white yeah, podcast, just, Nick. Yeah, I know. I just, just want yes or no. I am a Collingwood supporter. <laughs> but, um, it's just too fine. Look, I'd say it's probably the most influential. Yep. Possibly without a doubt, I think. Do you have a candidate for number one? Maybe we'll save it for another episode. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's have like, a think it's about like it. picking a pick your favourite child, you know. Mm, I have no children yet. <laughs> um, look, it, it's pretty close. Um, I, I, I can't say definitively because I do actually prefer The Empire Strikes Back. Sure, 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 sure. Um, mm. And just FYI, it's not going to happen right away, but, but folks listening, at some point we will get into episode five. Yeah. I can almost guarantee it, but we won't do it right away. We, we've done a lot of Star Wars at the moment, so we might we might move away from that. And Dan, same question to you. What's your, what's your thoughts well, the, on this one? Well, the American Film Institute do a poll uh, on a theme every few years, and a few years ago they did the greatest American uh, film scores of all time, and Star Wars was comfortably number one. There we, is, that, is that a popular vote, that one? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's experts, but it is but it is the American Film Institute that's okay. sort of endorsing right. it. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're pretty authoritative and they say it is. Um, I think. What it, do you say? I, I say yes. I say that Star Wars, 1977, A New Hope, whatever you want to call it, 
because it wasn't a New Hope at the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's the greatest film score of all time. Um, I I think uh, I almost it's weird to have said that and then agree with Nick that I do personally like Empire Strikes Back better because it is more coherent uh, and has deeper themes and more developed themes and does more interesting things with them. And I just like the music better. But Star Wars, I think, yeah, the influence. The, yeah, that's why I'm saying it's it's the biggest influencing score yeah. of all time. And I would say, and but I mean, you know, like at the same time, I kind of I feel like that overbalances the fact that I kind of like Empire a little bit more. It's almost like you know, I don't know. It's a ridiculous sort of uh, way to to weigh it up. But uh, look, yes, I think is the 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 simplest way to put it is yes, it is. What about you, Andrew? I actually you're just gonna. It's it's it is sort of uncool to say it. I actually think because it's too easy, mm. um, especially when you're you're really into soundtracks. It's too easy to say Star Wars. It's sort of shows that you maybe haven't checked a lot of the stuff out, you know. <laughs> but I disagree. Having checked out a lot of other stuff, yeah. And it is only because of these reasons. I don't think it's the most technically perfect one. I don't think it's. There's lots of different reasons why I don't think that it's the most amazing. But when you combine the influence, when you combine the influence on myself, very importantly, that it not only got me into movies, it got me into music, it got me into orchestras, it got me into anything to do with where my life has now led me, it's the only score that comes on and I will be happy. Mm. And I don't care if it's the 400th time. When that, when that score comes on, mm-hmm. I'm happy. I don't care what it is. And uh, my wife will actually agree with me that if I come home grumpy from work <laughs> and I'm upstairs, you know, storming around like an idiot, yeah. um, she just chucks on Star Wars and I come down and go, oh, okay, you know, that's all right. Life's, <laughs> life's not so bad anymore. And for that reason, I cannot honestly say that it is not mm. the greatest soundtrack ever written. I guess in absence of me picking something else over it, I guess, yeah, I, I probably would have to say it is... Yeah, you have to be all right with it. I can't really think of <laughs> yeah something else to replace. I it. mean, I'm not. I'm if I put my intellectual hat on, I you could probably come up with better candidates. But I don't think. I think that sucks. Well, no, but, but I mean that that's the thing though. Like I, I mean, if you want to put the intellectual hat on, I mean that's the thing that I struggle with with full music for a long time because it is an uncool genre of music to like for a lot of people. Well, that's true, especially when you compare it with orchestral. You know, the the great works. I mean, you look at the film scores that Shostakovich did. You look at the film scores that Prokofiev did. I mean, you know, uh, Alexander Nevsky, The Battle on the Ice, probably influenced the the Battle of Yavin as well, mm. right? And you know, a lot of that great quote unquote great composers Aaron Copeland did scores um Leonard Bernstein did film scores and they are great works a lot of them are fantastic and they are by you know capital letters great composers of 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 music history not just film history and you know you look at the greats of film history and you compare it but actually I don't know like I don't think any of their works had anywhere near as much influence as Star Wars and listening to them today they might be excellent but they're not as internally consistent and coherent and long-lasting as star wars but you know i think ultimately star wars channeled all those great composers you said and presented it to an entirely new generation who still are infatuated with it today so Mm -hmm. if anything it's it's power and its greatness is because it had that perfect mix and pos- possibly because of the film as well mm. of distilling the best things of classical music with William's own voice into something that people just went nuts for yep. and really has changed the face of film music yep. s- since that day. Yep. I think that's a great place to, to wrap it up. So, 
that is the end of part three of our analysis of Star Wars. Um, we're going to be back with uh, our next episode. I don't know what we're going to do. Do you guys know what we're going to do? We'll talk off mic. I do, but I'm not telling. Oh, good. Great. <laughs> of course, if you would like to hear a score for us to tackle in the future, um, I'd love to hear some TV and video game suggestions, actually. A few people have come in with some um, some great movie suggestions, which I think we're definitely going to get to some of those. But yeah, if it, there's a video game. We haven't done a video game yet, you guys. Mm. So if there's a video game you're after, let's you know get on Twitter and, and tell us what you'd like. But until that time... We're going to wrap things up here. Of course, hit us up on Twitter and um, Instagram. Get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. But until next time, I'm Andrew Pogson. That's Dan Golding. Thanks for having me. And he's Nicholas Buck. Han shot first. (laughs) (laughs) And he was the only one who shot. And this was Art of the Score.